This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Yeah, rejoice. Okay, yeah. It's me again, Margaret. Yeah. Marvin, uh, I think for reading the card up here, but you failed to see the back part. Yeah, it says, uh, keep it short, dork. Yeah. I, I know, yeah. I, uh, heart emoji, heart emoji, love, Pastor Grant. <laughs> I, I don't know who that was intended for. I really don't. I don't. I, the difference between Marvin and I the, today, outside of good looks, is uh, he's supervised. Cynthia's back. I'm unsupervised. <laughs> My wife's out of town. And when I kissed her goodbye yesterday, I got that just because you're unsupervised look, you know, you can't go to Lowe's or Harbor Freight. <laughs> and I think, oh my gosh, I got instructions too. And uh, so anyway, we were floating down the river yesterday, the Animus River. It's a beautiful river and I am so sore. Uh, but don't think that I'm not well medicated, okay? But I'm so sore. And I'd like to think, Gary, that we're not getting old. I've changed that line that we're just past our prime. Okay, it sounds a whole lot better than, than I feel horrible this morning, okay? <laughs> if you have your Bibles, Philippians chapter three, Philippians chapter three. And if you didn't have anything to confess this morning, good for you. Um, <laughs> Um, I'm going to give you something <laughs> for next week. I'm going to just get you fired up for next week, okay? So I'm going to give you something to... Oh, wait, anyway, here's... Go. I'm going to throw out one word, and you don't have to tell me the answer to it. I just want you to capture in your mind what you really think, okay? This is just something for next week's confession. Are you ready for this? I'm going to throw out one word, and then you think about it, okay? Overachiever. Overachiever. Does this thing work? Is it on, Dork? I guess it was meant for me, wasn't it? Stan. Okay, here we go, here we go, here we go. This is an overachiever. Okay? Don't you just want to... Just stop it. And then there's others. Go ahead, Stan. These are the guys I like. Yeah, I'm an overachiever at underachieving. But here's, here's what you really want to say. I want that mug. No one likes an overachiever. You just don't. Okay, curve wreckers. And so we're going to talk about that just a little bit today as we get ready. So uh, let's bow our heads, close our eyes. And let's get ready to see what Paul has to say today. Father, for your word, we're grateful. For joy in our hearts, we're grateful. For the gospel message that has brought us salvation, we're grateful. 
Father, teach us today from your word to rejoice in you. And we pray that in Jesus' name. And amen. Well, Paul continues his theme as he has throughout the letter. He's not going to quit. In fact, I'm going to tell you he's ramping it up. The theme of joy is going to flow even further downstream today. And in fact, I'm going to tell you that you need to fasten your seat belts, keep your hand and feet inside of the ride at all times, because he's going to hammer it home today with the Philippians. We've talked about in the first part of joy, and can I remind you, if you will just pay attention to his thread as it runs through Philippians, he's going to connect joy with the gospel. Joy is always downstream from the gospel. You understand that? It's not upstream, it's downstream. In other words, after the gospel, there's joy. He's already talked about that. He talked about bringing joy to the Philippians in chapter 1. He says, you're saints. Rejoice in the Lord. He's going to continue the great work that he started in you. And that you're ready for the day of the Lord, his second coming. And he goes on to say that his imprisonment, whatever's happened to him, has really served to advance the gospel. He's sitting in prison, full of joy, knowing that the gospel is being advanced as he's telling everyone, and even his rivals are preaching the gospel. And Paul says, I don't care. As long as the gospel is being preached, I'm joyful. And he begins in... uh, Chapter 1, verse 18, he says, Yes, and I will rejoice. And he says, Why? Because of the prayers of the saints and for the Holy Spirit. He says, It's going to, it's, it's going to be for my deliverance. And for Paul, the word deliverance uh, could come either way. I may die here in prison, or hey, I may get to come back and see you. He says, Either way, I win. If I die, great. I'm in the presence of the Lord. If not, I get to remain with you. In fact, in verse 28, he says, to continue with them for their progress and joy in the faith. And he implores them to live a life worthy of the gospel. In chapter 2, he goes on, he says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, the same love, and being in full accord of one mind. What was he talking about? Well, he was talking about the mind of Christ, wasn't he? He says that obedience is going to lead you to obedience uh, in Christ's manner, in his humble manner, is going to lead to obedience. And then he makes this great statement in uh, chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. He says, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. And likewise, you should uh, also be glad and rejoice with me. Last week, we talked about Paul uh, saying that you know, he had a need to be satisfied, and that need was to hear that the gospel was at work. He didn't need to hear that they were prospering financially. He didn't need to hear that they had elected a conservative leader and made great, Philippi great again. He didn't need to hear that they'd made peace with the Romans. What he needed to hear from them was that the gospel message was at work in their lives. And that was going to bring him another reason for joy, but now he absolutely revs it up for them. Everything that he talks about when it comes to rejoicing is connected to the gospel, not the circumstances around him, not the circumstances around them, but rather the gospel message of Jesus Christ. So 
Look at chapter 3, verse 1, first verse, and, he, and just the first word, he says, finally. Let me, let me pull that word together for you. Not only is he reaching the end of the letter, but he's saying, furthermore. Okay, this, this word can be translated as furthermore, or moreover, or in addition to. And he's adding to what he's already talked to them about joy. And he's imperative about it. He's emphatic about it. And I want you to remember, don't ever let go of the fact that Paul is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he writes this. These aren't Paul's words. These are words that the Holy Spirit has given Paul and he's writing it down for us. And I want you, I want, I'm going to read it in the manner in which he has written it. Furthermore, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. You may as well just point your finger at it because that's what he's saying, okay? He's given you all of these other reasons that he's had in the past. And now he's narrowing down and he says, rejoice, brothers, in the Lord. This is important. And you think, well, that's pretty plain English. I understand that. I get it. Oh, no, no. <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't be here capturing 30 minutes of your time. And think, Kim, could you say this in less, according to the note from Grant? Yes. <laughs> but let's read on. Spoiler alert here. As you read through this, all the way down through 4.1, we'll get to that uh, next year sometime. He's pitting one thing against the next, Okay. He's pitting us versus them, brothers versus the others, okay? The Christ alone people plus the, against the Christ plus people, and we'll talk about that in just a minute, all right? So he says, how does he do this? Well, let's read on. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. What's it? Look at it. To write the same things to you, it is no trouble, and it's safe. It isn't even in there, Kim. Okay. To write the same things. What's the same things? Well, the same things is the gospel. That's what he's already talked about, the entire thing. Plus, don't ever discount the fact of how long he spent at Philippi, and he'd already told them these things. And he says, you know, it's no trouble for me to write this to you again. In fact, he says, it's safe for you. Well, what does that mean? That word doesn't translate real well for us. He's saying he's going to confirm something with them. Okay? He's going to deep-seat it into them now. And he says, it's no problem for me. I'm going to write it to you again. And I'm going to confirm for you what you need to understand. And so here he goes. And so if you don't get these first three verses or so, you're not going to get the rest of this. So listen closely. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, I want you to understand that Paul threw out a great insult here. Okay? And where I come from, <laughs> you have to translate the language some days. You just have to be there. You know, it's like somebody's playing a banjo in the background. That word was misspelled in the New Testament, okay? Where I come from, first of all, when Paul uses this, it's a huge insult because dogs um, were these disease-carrying, uh, unsupervised uh, scavengers 
that were just uncontrolled and they ran in wild packs, okay? You might think of them as a pack of hyenas or something like that, okay? It was not Fluffy that's sleeping at the end of your bed, okay? That's a dog, okay? These are dogs. <laughs> D-A-W-G-S is how that is pronounced, and that's your, that's your hand. It's a dog. He says, look out for the dogs, all right? These are disease carrying scavengers. He says, look out for the evildoers, and the emphasis on that word is doers. Evil doers. They're not just thinking about it, they're pulling it off. In fact, he goes on and he says, how do they do it? Who mutilate the flesh. Some of your translations are going to say something along the line of who are bringing along the false circumcision. Okay, these are the legalists. These are the Jesus plus People. These are the people in Acts 15.1. Let me read it to you. But some of the men, literally now, these are those, those people. But some of the men came down from Judea and were teaching their brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's who these people were. These were the works people. And Paul says, Look out for them. He gives them a warning. The second thing he does is he assures them. Look at verse 3, the very first part. For we are the circumcision. Stop right there. First of all, there's some real attitude going on here with Paul. Not only has he insulted these people, but take your thumb and point it back to yourself and and he says, we are the circumcision. Now, it doesn't translate too snippy for us, but it did for them because when he used the word, we are the circumcision, that translates in Hebrew language as we're God's chosen people. Who's he talking to? Do you remember? He was talking to the church of Philippi. Who was in the church of Philippi? Well, there was Jews, there was Gentiles. And Paul's saying, we are the circumcision. We are God's people. Okay, there's some real attitude he's throwing out here, but he's going to make a point, and he's going to make it hard. He's assuring them that they're the covenant people of God, and he says rejoice in the Lord. He knew that the whole circumcision was nothing more than a covenant sign. Listen to what he wrote in Romans chapter 4. He said, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count as sin. This is a prayer of David in in Psalm chapter chapter 32. And then he goes on and says, now listen, is is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Or also the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? Paul answers the question. He says, It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteous would not be... Righteousness would be counted to them and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. All right, let me boil that all down to you. It says, okay, it was a sign. It was Abraham's faith. It was counted righteousness to him before he was circumcised. 
In other words, it was a circumcision of the heart, a faith issue. Moses said it. In Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 30, he says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and that you may live. Paul went again in Romans chapter 2. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. Okay? By the Spirit, not by the letter. And then in Galatians, he just absolutely ran it through the goalposts. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. It's a matter of the heart. He assured them. But then the third thing he did was he says he reminds them of who they are. Look at it. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Do you see the divisions he's starting to make here? He's dividing the brothers and the others right here. He says, we're the ones who worship God by the Spirit of God. They don't. We glory, we boast, we rejoice in Christ Jesus and His work. They don't. We put no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in our works. We put no confidence in our ceremonies. They do. He's made a clear distinction, and he keeps coming back to rejoice in the Lord. Let's take a time out for just a second. Paul was making it very clear to these people because the Judaizers were coming along behind him and saying, you can't really be saved unless you're circumcised. They were just real clear about it. Make no mistake, the Bible's talking to you and I too. And right here, he is assuring them, but he's warning us to look out for the Jesus plus people. Be warned, be assured you are God's people. We worship in the Spirit. We glory in Christ alone. Put no confidence in the flesh. Paul is dismantling work slowly. The I go to church, the I got baptized, the I joined the church, that I follow this rule and that rule, that I'm buddies with Pastor Grant. I, I, I. Folks, these are the results of salvation, not the means to it. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Now, verses 4 through 6. Before we read it, let me caution you real quickly. Paul is not so much bragging or boasting here as the fact that he's saying he's uniquely qualified to speak to this issue. Do you understand that? Okay, there's nothing wrong. The second thing, there's nothing wrong with good works. That's not what Paul's saying. Okay? He's, he was a good Pharisee. He's not anti-good works or anti-good Jewish person. Paul is making a point for the new 
covenant. Paul is just saying, okay, as we read this, keep this in your mind. He's just saying, if anybody has confidence in the flesh or in the works or, or being a good Jew, you know what? I'd qualify. If keeping the law gave you a right standing before God, guess what? I'm in. It's never bragging if it's fact, okay? That's what they say. Verses 4 through 6, listen closely. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. As to the law, as to zeal, as to righteousness under the law, all of that adds up to being blameless. Do you understand the word overachiever? Paul was an overachiever. If anybody had an in with God, it was Paul. Notice verse 7. First word. Here's your hint that something's changed. This is the turning point of the argument. This is where you buckle your seatbelts in because he's getting ready to dump the truck right here. The argument, the reality of the gospel message, this is the difference between the old Paul and the new Paul. This is the difference between confidence in the flesh and confidence in Christ alone. That word but, B-U-T, literally destroys and nullifies everything that he said in verses 4 through 6. He crosses it all off. He literally says, I take no confidence in the flesh. He removes it from the table. Verse 7, first word, but. How could Paul write that? How could he even insert that word? Well, Acts chapter 9. Where was he? He was on the road to Damascus. Who found Paul? It was a holy incarnate God that stood before him. And all of a sudden, Paul realized, my works are worth nothing standing in the midst of holiness. And Paul came to the realizations that his works paled. In fact, they were worthless. Look at the verse. But whatever gain I had, verses 4 through 6, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And in verse 8, it's, it's nothing more than a repetition of the thing. He'll use that word loss three times. Indeed, loss was in verse 7. Indeed, I count everything, all his works, all of his resume, everything as lost, bankrupt, trash. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That is the politically correct term for dog excrement. Only place it's used in the New Testament. And Paul was absolutely on a roll 
Do you see what he equated all of his works with? That, that word can be translated as excrement, um, animal, dung, or trash that you would throw out for the dogs. That's what he equated verses 4 through 6 with. He was adamant. He was on a roll. He did not hold back. You want, you want to compare trophies with Paul? I'll, I'll show you, Paul says. I got trophies. They're worth nothing. Dog doo-doo. It's as nice as I can be. Why? Paul says in verse 8, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. In him. In who? In the Lord. What does Paul say? Rejoice in the Lord. In him. Paul is pleading, using himself as an example, saying, don't listen to the legalists. I've been there. I've done that. It's worth nothing. It's the new covenant. I counted it all as trash so that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Count your flesh as loss. No confidence. Why? Because there is a surpassing worth of knowing Christ, experiencing Him, His work. Count all of yours as loss. Read it again. For His sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. You realize that this is the prize, right? This is the prize, the gospel. This is what Paul is absolutely nailing home for them. The crux of the matter is being right with God. Now listen to what he says. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. What's that? Is that not verses 4 through 6? That comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from, de- from God that depends on faith. A right standing, a justified man in front of God, depending on faith in Christ, not in keeping the law. It's impossible to do. It's impossible to keep the law. But rather, there's this righteousness through faith, and he's, do you see where he's pitted righteousness of faith versus righteousness by the law? Do you see where he keeps dividing these things off? And he's putting this great chasm between it. And the, the prize of it all is righteousness with God, a right standing with God. And he's saying it's not the law. It's righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 10. This is furtherance, okay, of the last part of 8 and first part of 9, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Therefore, verse 10, so that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may may share in His suffering. Let's stop right there. 
Paul says he wants to be like him. Basically, the way the phrase is put in, in the language there is, I want to emulate him. I want to be conformed to the image of Christ. In other words, I want to be like my hero. I want to be like Christ. I want to know him. Be like him. And then he goes on to say, so that he knows the power of the resurrection. We'll come back to that. Don't, we will not skip over that one. So that he may share in his sufferings. Did Paul suffer? Absolutely. Listen to what he wrote Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. In John chapter 15, verse 20, Jesus says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And then Peter, chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. The sufferings aren't the strange, but here's what I don't want you to miss in what he wrote, how he wrote it, okay? He, is, he, 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 he says he's counted everything as lost in order that he can gain Christ and be found in him. He says, so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. There's an order there. Don't miss it. The first thing is to know him. The power, we could, man, we could have a sermon on just this. The power of the resurrection. You realize what Paul was accused of in Athens? Do you remember? Well, he was, in Acts 17, 18, he says, he was preaching Jesus and what? The resurrection. The power of the resurrection. This is written in a sequence that you need to understand that he wanted to know him and he wanted to know the power of the resurrection, you realize that your salvation is in the wake of the resurrection. The reason that you have power to endure these sufferings is not because you're a super person, it's because you live in the power of the resurrection. He wrote it in order so that I may know him in the power of the resurrection, and to share in his sufferings, and become like him in his death. Well, what's that? Well, can I remind you, it's still echoing back to verses 8 and 9. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead, becoming like him in his death. Let me ask you, what happened three days after Jesus died? He's alive. The power of the resurrection. Paul was not uncertain about his salvation. Paul was not uh, preaching, you know, some people leave this, oh, that I may attain. No, 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 no. Whoa, 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 whoa. You've misread this. Again, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, well, what's that? Paul says it doesn't matter whether I die in my sleep. It doesn't matter if they lop my head off tomorrow. I don't know what's coming. No idea what my next day is going to bring. He's saying by any means possible, God, I want to be like Christ 
in his death that I may attain, that it's like that my that I may experience the resurrection, however I'm gonna get there. Okay? It may be with or without my head, but I'm gonna get there. He wasn't uncertain about his salvation. He was not pushing a work salvation. What he was saying is that the salvation is certainty. My days and what I'm going to suffer are not. What will it be like? I don't know. How many days do I left? Paul says, I don't know. What suffering am I going to occur? I don't know. But he does know that he will be like Christ in his death by rising from the dead. Why? Because he gained Christ. Because he was found in him and he had a righteousness from God by faith in Christ. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Listen to what Paul wrote in chapter 3 of Romans. Starting in verse 20. For by works of the law no human will be justified in his sight. Okay, that's pretty clear. Don't think he hadn't preached that in Philippi. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin... The righteousness of God through faith. But now, Philippi, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And he goes on down in, chapter, in the same chapter in verse 20, says, and then what becomes of our boasting? Well, what's our boasting? Was it not Philippians 3, 4 through 6, all of these works, all of these things? I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day, and on and on and on. He says, what becomes of our boasting? He says, it is excluded. We know what excluded means, but here it has a little bit different meaning. There's a passive and an active term to this. The active term of excluded in the Greek means you toss something out of the house. Okay? That's the active form. The passive form, which is written here, means that something slammed the door so something could not get in. Okay? So Paul says... Then what becomes of verses 4 through 6? It is excluded. The door was shut on it so it could not get in. By what kind of law, he says? The law of works? Did that shut the door? Well, no. What's he say? He says, not by law of works, but by the law of faith. Faith is the one that shut the door to works. Do you see that? That's what he's saying. I have nothing to boast about. The law of faith slammed the door in works. That's what makes us righteous with God, by faith. These people knew what Paul was saying. This wasn't an academic exercise. This is about the reality of Christ and Christ alone, His work that changes our heart. To be right with God, to be righteous in God's sight, to be justified before a holy God is not built on the burden of keeping the law. It's not built upon the burden of, of what you would call church attendance or on your tithing or your membership. These are all outgrowths of being saved, not the path to being saved. Do you understand that? Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because he kept the burden of the law on our behalf and paid the price where you and I 
failed. And Paul says, I am glad to repeat this to you and confirm it in your life. That's safe. So, how does that affect you and me? Well, can I remind you that the gospel is still the same? It has not changed. It's the same message. It's just different works we seem to lean on. Don't get me wrong. There's, there's nothing wrong with good works. There's nothing wrong in particular in participating in the gospel. But can I remind you that so many people have this backwards where I come from, it's backwards. So many people miss it. And unfortunately, here's the end to it. I think the most devastating, if, the, if not the most uh, scary verse in all of Scripture. And Jesus spoke it. If you have a red letter edition, guess what color it's in. Jesus said, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we, are you catching this, not do mighty works in your name? And Jesus now says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Gary would add to that, the handwriting's on the wall. It's done. It's too late. It's too late. Can I remind you that hell is full of good people? Don't be fooled. They went to church faithfully. They helped the poor faithfully. They kept the law of the land faithfully. They lived a, quote, Christian life faithfully. They gave to the church faithfully. But all of these faithful things are not going to save you. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Christ in Christ alone put no confidence in the flesh. Paul is telling you and I, rejoice in the Lord, not in your works. Rejoice in the Lord, not in your ceremonies. Rejoice in the Lord, not in your church activities or your membership. And it all comes down to this. Let me ask you. Is Christ alone? By faith alone. Through His grace alone. Enough for you. So many of us want to say, I had a hand in my salvation. And if you really need a reason for um, participating in your salvation, Jonathan Edwards gives you an out. 
Pastor Grant then puts an exclamation point at the end of it. Here it is. Jonathan Edwards says, You contribute nothing to your salvation except, you ready? The sin that made it necessary. Pastor Grant says, and your sin is way worse than what you think. I would only add to that, but, but, his grace and his mercy are far more than what you can imagine. If you would just trust him and not your works. So, is Christ alone enough for you. Can you say with Paul, we are God's people. We are those who worship by the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus. We put no confidence in the flesh. We rejoice in the Lord. Stand with us as we sing.